Section 20 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Lawler. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 7, On the Races of Man, Part 4. We have now seen that the external characteristic differences between the races of man cannot be accounted for in a satisfactory manner by the direct action of the conditions of life, nor by the effects of the continued use of parts, nor through the principle of correlation. We are, therefore, led to inquire whether slight individual differences, to which man is eminently liable, may not have been preserved and augmented through a long series of generations through natural selection. But here we are at once met by the objection that beneficial variations alone can thus be preserved, and, as far as we are enabled to judge, although always liable to err on this head, none of the differences between the races of man are of any direct or special service to him. The intellectual and moral or social faculties must, of course, be accepted from this remark. The great variability of all the external differences between the races of man likewise indicates that they cannot be of much importance. For, if important, they would long ago have been either fixed and preserved or eliminated. In this respect, man resembles those forms called by naturalists protean or polymorphic, which have remained extremely variable, owing, as it seems, to such variations being of an indifferent nature, and to their having thus escaped the action of natural selection. We have thus far been baffled in all our attempts to account for the differences between the races of man, but there remains one important agency, namely sexual selection, which appears to have acted powerfully on man, as on many other animals. I do not intend to assert that sexual selection will account for all the differences between the races. An unexplained residuum is left, about which we can only say, in our ignorance, that as individuals are continually born with, for instance, heads a little rounder or narrower, and with noses a little longer or shorter, such slight differences might become fixed and uniform, if the unknown agencies which induce them were to act in a more constant manner aided by long-continued intercrossing. Such variations come under the provisional class, alluded to in our second chapter, which, for want of a better term, are often called spontaneous. Nor do I pretend that the effects of sexual selection can be indicated with scientific precision, but it can be shown that it would be an inexplicable fact if man had not been modified by this agency which appears to have acted powerfully on innumerable animals. It can further be shown that the differences between the races of man, as in color, hairiness, form of features, etc., are of a kind which might have been expected to come under the influence of sexual selection. But in order to treat this subject properly, I have found it necessary to pass the whole animal kingdom in review. I have therefore devoted to it the second part of this work. At the close I shall return to man and, after attempting to show how far he has been modified through sexual selection, will give a brief summary of the chapters in the first part. 
Note on the resemblances and differences in the structure and development of the brain in man and apes by Professor Huxley, FRS. The controversy respecting the nature and the extent of the differences in the structure of the brain in man and apes, which arose some 15 years ago, has not yet come to an end, though the subject matter of the dispute is, at present, totally different from what it was formerly. It was originally asserted, and reasserted with singular pertinacity, that the brain of all the apes, even the highest, differs from that of man in the absence of such conspicuous structures as the posterior lobes of the cerebral hemispheres, with the posterior corno of the lateral ventricle, and the hippocampus minor, contained in those lobes, which are so obvious in man. But the truth is that the three structures in question are as well developed in apes as in human brains, or even better, and that it is characteristic of the primates, if we exclude the lemurs, to have these parts well developed, stands at present on as secure a basis as any proposition in comparative anatomy. Moreover, it is admitted by every one of the long series of anatomists who, of late years, have paid special attention to the arrangement of the complicated sulci and gyri which appear upon the surface of the cerebral hemispheres in man and the higher apes, that they are disposed after the very same pattern in him as in them. Every principal gyrus and sulcus of a chimpanzee's brain is clearly represented in that of man, so that the terminology which applies to the one answers for the other. On this point there is no difference of opinion. Some years since, Professor Bischoff published a memoir on the cerebral convolutions of man and apes. And, as the purpose of my learned colleague was certainly not to diminish the value of the differences between apes and men in this respect, I am glad to make a citation from him. Quote, that the apes, and especially the orang, chimpanzee, and gorilla, come very close to man in their organization, much nearer than to any other animal, is a well-known fact disputed by nobody. Looking at the matter from the point of view of organization alone, no one probably would ever have disputed the view of Linnaeus, that man should be placed, merely as a peculiar species, at the head of the mammalia, and of those apes. Both show, in all their organs, so close an affinity that the most exact anatomical investigation is needed in order to demonstrate those differences which really exist. So it is with the brains. The brains of man, the orang, the chimpanzee, the gorilla, in spite of all the important differences which they present, come very close to one another." Unquote. There remains, then, no dispute as to the resemblance and fundamental characters between the ape's brain and man's, nor any as to the wonderfully close similarity between the chimpanzee, orang, and man in even the details of the arrangement of the gyri and sulci of the cerebral hemispheres, nor, turning to the differences between the brains of the highest apes and that of man, is there any serious question as to the nature and extent of these differences. It is admitted that the man's cerebral hemispheres are absolutely and relatively larger than those of the orang and chimpanzee. 
that his frontal lobes are less excavated by the upward protrusion of the roof of the orbits, that his gyri and sulci are, as a rule, less symmetrically disposed, and present a greater number of secondary plications. And it is admitted that, as a rule, in man, the temporo-occipital or external perpendicular fissure, which is usually so strongly marked a feature of the ape's brain, is but faintly marked. But it is also clear that none of these differences constitutes a sharp demarcation between the man's and the ape's brain. In respect to the external perpendicular fissure of Graciolet, in the human brain, for instance, Professor Turner remarks, quote, In some brains it appears simply as an indentation of the margin of the hemisphere, but in others it extends for some distance more or less transversely outwards. I saw it in the right hemisphere of a female brain pass more than two inches outwards, and on another specimen, also the right hemisphere, it proceeded for four-tenths of an inch outwards, and then extended downwards as far as the lower margin of the outer surface of the hemisphere. The imperfect definition of this fissure in the majority of human brains, as compared with its remarkable distinctness in the brain of most quadrumana, is owing to the presence in the former of certain superficial, well-marked, secondary convolutions which bridge it over and connect the parietal with the occipital lobe. The closer the first of these bridging gyri lies to the longitudinal fissure, the shorter is the external parieto-occipital fissure." Unquote. The obliteration of the external perpendicular fissure of Graciolet, therefore, is not a constant character of the human brain. On the other hand, its full development is not a constant character of the higher ape's brain. For, in the chimpanzee, the more or less extensive obliteration of the external perpendicular sulcus by bridging convolutions, on one side or the other, has been noted over and over again by Professor Ralston, Mr. Marshall, Monsieur Brokaw, and Professor Turner. At the conclusion of a special paper on this subject, the latter writes, quote, The three specimens of the brain of a chimpanzee just described prove that the generalization which Graciolet has attempted to draw of the complete absence of the first connecting convolution and the concealment of the second, as essentially characteristic features in the brain of this animal, is by no means universally applicable. In only one specimen did the brain, in these particulars, follow the law which Graciolet has expressed. As regards the presence of the superior bridging convolution, I am inclined to think that it has existed in one hemisphere, at least, in a majority of the brains of this animal which have, up to this time, been figured or described. The superficial position of the second bridging convolution is evidently less frequent, and has, as yet, I believe, only been seen in the brain A recorded in this communication. The asymmetrical arrangement in the convolutions of the two hemispheres, which previous observers have referred to in their descriptions, is also well illustrated in these specimens. Unquote. Even were the presence of the temporo-occipital or external perpendicular sulcus 
a mark of distinction between the higher apes and man, the value of such a distinctive character would be rendered very doubtful by the structure of the brain and the platyrrhine apes. In fact, while the temporo-occipital is one of the most constant of sulci in the catarrhine or old-world apes, it is never very strongly developed in the new-world apes. It is absent in the smaller platyrrhini, rudimentary in pathetia, and more or less obliterated by bridging convolutions in Ateles. A character which is thus variable within the limits of a single group can have no great taxonomic value. It is further established that the degree of asymmetry of the convolution of the two sides in the human brain is subject to much individual variation, and that, in those individuals of the Bushman race who have been examined, the gyri and sulci of the two hemispheres are considerably less complicated and more symmetrical than in the European brain, while in some individuals of the chimpanzee, their complexity and asymmetry become notable. This is particularly the case in the brain of a young male chimpanzee figured by Monsieur Broca. Again, as respects the question of absolute size, it is established that the difference between the largest and the smallest healthy human brain is greater than the difference between the smallest healthy human brain and the largest chimpanzees, or orang's brain. Moreover, there is one circumstance in which the orang's and chimpanzees' brains resemble man's, but in which they differ from the lower apes, and that is the presence of two corpora candicantia, the cinnamorpha having but one. In view of these facts, I do not hesitate in this year, 1874, to repeat and insist upon the proposition which I enunciated in 1863. Quote, so far as cerebral structure goes, therefore, it is clear that man differs less from the chimpanzee or the orang than these do even from the monkeys, and that the difference between the brain of the chimpanzee and of man is almost insignificant when compared with that between the chimpanzee brain and that of a lemur. Unquote. In the paper to which I have referred, Professor Bischoff does not deny the second part of this statement, but he first makes the irrelevant remark that it is not wonderful if the brains of an orang and a lemur are very different, and secondly goes on to assert that, quote, if we successively compare the brain of a man with that of an orang, the brain of this with that of a chimpanzee, of this with that of a gorilla, and so on of a hylobates, semnopithecus, cynocephalus, cercopithecus, macacus, cebus, calithrix, lemur, stenops, hopalae, we shall not meet with a greater or even as great a break in the degree of development of the convolutions as we find between the brain of a man and that of an orang or chimpanzee." Unquote. To which I reply, firstly, that whether this assertion be true or false, it has nothing whatever to do with the proposition enunciated in Man's Place in Nature, which refers not to the development of the convolutions alone, but to the structure of the whole brain. If Professor Bischoff had taken the trouble to refer to page 96 of the work he criticizes, in fact, he would have found the following passage. 
Quote, and it is a remarkable circumstance that though, so far as our present knowledge extends, there is one true structural break in the series of forms of simian brains, this hiatus does not lie between man and the man-like apes, but between the lower and the lowest simians, or, in other words, between the old and new world apes and monkeys and the lemurs. Every lemur, which has yet been examined, in fact, has its cerebellum partially visible from above, and its posterior lobe with a contained posterior cornu and hippocampus minor more or less rudimentary. Every marmoset, American monkey, old world monkey, baboon, or man-like ape, on the contrary, has its cerebellum entirely hidden, posteriorly, by the cerebral lobes, and possesses a large posterior cornu with a well-developed hippocampus minor." Unquote. This statement was a strictly accurate account of what was known when it was made, and it does not appear to me to be more than apparently weakened by the subsequent discovery of the relatively small development of the posterior lobes in the siamang and in the howling monkey. Notwithstanding the exceptional brevity of the posterior lobes in these two species, no one will pretend that their brains, in the slightest degree, approach those of the lemurs. And if, instead of putting Hopalay out of its natural place, as Professor Bischoff most unaccountably does, we write the series of animals he has chosen to mention as follows. Homo, Pathicus, Troglodytes, Hylobates, Semnopithecus, Cynocephalus, Circopithecus, Macacus, Cebus, Calithrix, Hapalae, Lemur, Stenops. I venture to reaffirm that the great break in this series lies between Hopalae and Lemur, and that this break is considerably greater than that between any other two terms of that series. Professor Bischoff ignores the fact that, long before he wrote, Graciolet had suggested the separation of the lemurs from the other primates on the very ground of the difference in their cerebral characters, and that Professor Flower had made the following observations in the course of his description of the brain of the Javan Loris. Quote, and it is especially remarkable that, in the development of the posterior lobes, there is no approximation to the lemurine short-hemisphered brain in those monkeys which are commonly supposed to approach this family in other respects, viz. the lower members of the platyrrhine group." Unquote. So far as the structure of the adult brain is concerned, then, the very considerable additions to our knowledge which have been made by the researches of so many investigators during the past ten years fully justify the statement which I made in 1863. But it has been said that admitting the similarity between the adult brains of man and apes, they are nevertheless, in reality, widely different because they exhibit fundamental differences in the mode of their development. No one would be more ready than I to admit the force of this argument if such fundamental differences of development really exist. But I deny that they do exist. On the contrary, there is a fundamental agreement in the development of the brain in men and apes. Graciolet originated the statement that there is a fundamental difference in the development of the brains of apes and that of man, consisting in this. 
that in the apes the sulci which first make their appearance are situated on the posterior region of the cerebral hemispheres while in the human fetus the sulci first become visible on the frontal lobes footnote quote chitou les sages les plis postérieurs se développent les premiers les plis antérieurs se développent plus tard aussi la vertebra occipitale et la parietale sont-elles relativement très grandes chez le fœtus l'homme présente une exception remarquable quant à l'époque de l'apparition des plis frontaux qui sont les premiers indiques mais le développement général de l'aube frontale envisage seulement par rapport à son volume suit les mêmes lois que dans les sages. Unquote. End of footnote. This general statement is based upon two observations, the one of a gibbon almost ready to be born, in which the posterior gyri were well developed, while those of the frontal lobes were hardly indicated. Footnote. Graciolet's words are, quote, Dans les fœtus dont il s'agit, les plis cérébraux postérieurs sont bien développés, sans que les plis du lobe frontal sont upon antique. Unquote. The figure, however, shows the fissure of Rolando and one of the frontal sulci plainly enough. Nevertheless, Monsieur Alix, in his Notice sur les travaux anthropologiques de Graciolet, writes thus quote, Graciolet a eu entre les mots le cerveau de Fétus de Gibbon sage éminemment supérieur et tellement rapproché de Laurent que des naturalistes très compétents l'orange parmi les anthropoïdes. Monsieur Huxley, par exemple, n'hésita pas sur ses points. Eh bien, Cécile se veut d'affaires des gibbons que Graciolet avoue les circonvolutions ou l'aube temporal sphénoïdale déjà développée lorsqu'il n'existe pas encore de plus sur le lobe frontal. Il est donc bien autorisé à dire que l'homme les circonvolutions apparaissent de en W tandis que chez les songes elle se développe de W au A. End of footnote.
and the other of a human fetus at the 22nd or 23rd week of utero gestation, in which Graciolet notes that the insula was uncovered, but that nevertheless, quote, des onze jours, c'est des lobes antérieurs, un sigeur peu profond, antique, la séparation du lobe occipital, très réduit du lieu de cette époque. Le reste de la surface cérébrale est encore absolument lisse. Unquote. Three views of this brain are given in Plate 2, figures 1, 2, 3 of the work cited, showing the upper, lateral, and inferior views of the hemispheres, but not the inner view. It is worthy of note that the figure by no means bears out Graciolet's description, inasmuch as the fissure, enterotemporal on the posterior half of the face of the hemisphere, is more marked than any of those vaguely indicated in the anterior half. If the figure is correct, it in no way justifies Graciolet's conclusion, quote, Il y a donc entre ses cerveaux, those of a calithrix and of a gibbon, es ul oui du fetus uma on différence fondamentale, chez celle l'ancto avant que le pli temporo apparaît les plis fronteux essaient d'exister. Since Graciolet's time, however, the development of the gyri and sulci of the brain has been made the subject of renewed investigation by Schmidt, Bischoff, Pansch, and more particularly Ecker, whose work is not only the latest, but by far the most complete memoir on the subject. The final results of their inquiries may be summed up as follows. 1. In the human fetus, the sylvian fissure is formed in the course of the third month of utero gestation. In this and the fourth month, the cerebral hemispheres are smooth and rounded, with the exception of the sylvian depression, and they project backwards far beyond the cerebellum. 2. The sulci, properly so called, begin to appear in the interval between the end of the fourth and the beginning of the sixth month of fetal life. But Ecker is careful to point out that not only the time, but the order of their appearance is subject to considerable individual variation. In no case, however, are either the frontal or the temporal sulci the earliest. The first which appears, in fact, lies on the inner face of the hemisphere whence doubtless Graciolet, who does not seem to have examined that face in his fetus, overlooked it, and is either the internal perpendicular occipitoparietal or the calcarine sulcus, these two being close together and eventually running into one another. As a rule, the occipitoparietal is the earlier of the two. 3. At the latter part of this period, Another sulcus, the posterior parietal, or fissure of Rolando, is developed, 
and it is followed in the course of the sixth month by the other principal sulci of the frontal parietal temporal and occipital lobes there is however no clear evidence that one of these constantly appears before the other and it is remarkable that in the brain at the period described and figured by ecker the anterotemporal sulcus seizure parallel so characteristic of the ape's brain is as well if not better developed than the fissure of rolando and is much more marked than the proper frontal sulci taking the facts as they now stand it appears to me that the order of the appearance of the sulci and gyri of the fetal human brain is in perfect harmony with the general doctrine of evolution and with the view that man has been evolved from some ape-like form though there can be no doubt that form was in many respects different from any member of the primates now living von baer taught us half a century ago that in the course of their development allied animals put on at first the characters of the greater groups to which they belong and by degrees assume those which restrict them within the limits of their family genus and species and he proved at the same time that no developmental stage of a higher animal is precisely similar to the adult condition of any lower animal it is quite correct to say that a frog passes through the condition of a fish inasmuch as at one period of its life the tadpole has all the characters of a fish and if it went no further would have to be grouped among the fishes but it is equally true that a tadpole is very different from any known fish in like manner the brain of a human fetus at the fifth month may correctly be said to be not only the brain of an ape but that of an arctopithecine or marmoset-like ape for its hemispheres with their great posterior lobster and with no sulci but the sylvian and the calcarine present the characteristics found only in the group of arctopithecine primates but it is equally true as graciolet remarks that in its widely open sylvian fissure it differs from the brain of any actual marmoset no doubt it would be much more similar to the brain of an advanced fetus of a marmoset but we know nothing whatever of the development of the brain in the marmosets in the platyrrhini proper the only observation with which i am acquainted is due to panch who found in the brain of a fetal cebus apella in addition to the sylvian fissure and the deep calcarine fissure only a very shallow anterotemporal fissure seizure parallel of graciolet now this fact taken together with the circumstance that the anterotemporal sulcus is present in such platyrrhini as the samiri which present mere traces of sulci on the anterior half of the exterior of the cerebral hemispheres or none at all undoubtedly so far as it goes affords fair evidence in favor of graciolet's hypothesis that the posterior sulci appear before the interior in the brains of the platyrrhini but it by no means follows that the rule which may hold good for the platyrrhini extends to the catarrhini we have no information whatever respecting the development of the brain in the cinemorpha and as regards the anthropomorpha 
nothing but the account of the brain of the gibbon near birth already referred to. At the present moment there is not a shadow of evidence to show that the sulci of the chimpanzee's or orang's brain do not appear in the same order as man's. Gracielet opens his preface with the aphorism, Il est dangereux dans les sciences de conclure draw vita. I fear he must have forgotten this sound maxim by the time he had reached the discussion of the differences between men and apes in the body of his work. No doubt the excellent author of one of the most remarkable contributions to the just understanding of the mammalian brain which has ever been made would have been the first to admit the insufficiency of his data, had he lived to profit by the advance of inquiry. The misfortune is that his conclusions have been employed by persons incompetent to appreciate their foundation as arguments in favor of obscurantism. For example, Monsieur Labi Le Comte, in his terrible pamphlet Le Darwinisme et l'Origine de l'Homme. 1873. But it is important to remark that, whether Graciolet was right or wrong in his hypothesis respecting the relative order of appearance of the temporal and frontal sulci, the fact remains that before either temporal or frontal sulci appear, the fetal brain of man presents characters which are found only in the lowest group of the primates, leaving out the lemurs and that this is exactly what we should expect to be the case if man has resulted from the gradual modification of the same form as that from which the other primates have sprung. End of recording. End of section 20. End of The Descent of Man, Part 1. Section 20 recording by Joseph Lawler.